Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 115. Let's hear God's word. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not hear. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make, make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, he is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. There are four relationships that we need to examine and take seriously in our lives. God, self, others, and the world. Uh, over the course of the next month, each week we're in a short sermon series where we're going to consider each of those relationships, our relationship to God, how that is at work within ourselves and our self-understanding, how we're relating to others, and how we're relating to the world. And then in October, we'll start the series for the year in the book of Ephesians that we'll be in for about six months. But we're starting here because this is actually really important and something that we've identified as a church uh, needs to be on, this, on, on the mindset uh, that we have. So if you take our membership class, for example, we talk about this there. Or if you've poked around our website, you may have found similar language. Um, each of these relationships are crucial, and yet uh, most of us are having trouble in at least one of those areas, if not several or all of them. So today we're going to start with the relationship with God, God who the Bible presents as giving us life. And uh, the opening of the Bible creates a, a, a picture that we are to be relating to God, but something has gone wrong. And we experience uh, the fact that something has gone wrong between us because we don't see God, we don't hear from God. The thought of God may not encourage our hearts, it may make us anxious. It's confusing, how do you relate to God? God is so different from relating to a person. And yet, um, learning that God is not just a higher power out there or an energy force, or that the world is not just random and meaningless, uh, but that there's a God who speaks, who reveals, who is with us. Uh, once you grasp how Christianity is meant to restore and reconcile and, and bring renewal in those areas, it really brings life and makes us alive, and it changes all the other relationships, uh, who we are in ourselves, how we relate to other people, and how we relate to the world. I'm going to start with a quote from a guy named R.C. Sproul. 
Uh, I'm going to read a paragraph here. He says, what is often overlooked is that we always have a personal relationship to God because we are persons and God is a person. So he's not claiming God is a human being, but God is personal. Uh, and a relationship is established in creation between God and us, a relationship that is inescapable. I can deny the existence of God. All that does is put me in an estranged relationship to God, which is still a personal relationship. It is a personal relationship of hostility, a personal relationship of denial, a personal relationship of estrangement, but it is still a personal relationship. So the question is not whether there is a personal relationship, but what is the quality of that personal relationship? Is it a healthy one or an unhealthy one, a redeemed one or an estranged one? So Sproul was highlighting maybe the atheist who doesn't believe that God exists and is saying, but whether or not you believe that God exists, that is affecting your life. Uh, so certainly any of you who don't believe in God or have trouble understanding God would benefit from taking time to examine this. But those of us who do believe in God uh, still find that we experience something of that estrangement or there's something there that that still doesn't always go as we think it should. And therefore, every one of us needs to be growing and deepening in what it means to understand that God is personal. So that's where I'm going to begin this morning. I want to talk about three different uh, components of, of relating to God this morning. One, that God is a personal God. Secondly, I want to talk about lifeless gods. And then third, about the living God. But I want to start with our personal God, because the language of Psalm 115 right away uh, is relational language. In, in verse 1, not to us, not to us, but to your name give glory. That's a statement of love. It's a statement of devotion. But it says, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And that makes God different from Siri or Alexa. Uh, that you can speak into your phone and you get a response with a lot of information, but that, that uh, Siri is not faithful to you. ChatGBT is a useful tool but doesn't love you. Uh, the, the understanding here is there's a God here who actually uh, embodies those characteristics and that changes the way we would relate to God. He's not just a power out there, not just a lawgiver, not just a rule keeper, not just somebody who demands religious uh, attention, but he is a God who made us and will speak to us and will be present with us and will help us. And so that changes things. There's a mathematician named John Lennox. And because he's very bright and because he taught for many years in Oxford, Christians who want to think intelligently often look to him uh, as somebody for guidance and how to think about things like science and Christianity. And he's also one of those that will uh, debate leading thinkers like Peter Singer or Richard Dawkins. And I remember seeing an interview with him where he was talking about Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible. Uh, and, and because all of the questions he gets tends to be about the mechanics of how do you explain how the universe was made. And he says one thing that people miss, a very important verse in Genesis 1, uh, that actually says something more profound than simply looking for a map of how things came to be, is just Genesis 1.28 where after God has said, let there be light, and after God has said, let there be, you know, stars in the heaven and the sun and the moon, Genesis 128, God said to them. 
Uh, and that phrase says something. God speaks to the man and the woman that he created. God said to them, he gives instruction. And so right there from the very beginning, this God is personal. It's a God who speaks, who reveals, who makes known, a God who listens, a God who is present with. And so that is essential. Uh, and so we find God's being personal in verse three, where the claim is our God does all that he pleases. So God is independent. And that is something that's important for us if we are to relate to God, because God is not simply like uh, Santa Claus, that if we, if we learn the rules and we do things, he'll do nice things for us. Um, but God actually is a living being. He, he is eternal. Uh, he is all powerful. He can see all things. And, and therefore, we can't control him and shouldn't try to control him. But because that God is good and that God is personal, we should be open to getting to know who he is. And so um, he does all that he pleases. That is intimidating to some of us because we want a God who does what pleases us. And one of the reasons we want that goes down to one of the problems we have as human beings, which is we have desires, we want good things, but, but all of us are confronted with a certain lack of control over our lives. There are certain things you can control, certain things you can't control. There are people around you that are great at things you want to be good at, and you can be disciplined and you can work hard, but maybe you feel like, whatever I do, I'll never be that great. There are people that you'd like to be friends with and you can't make them be friends with you, uh, and you may have certain limitations in life, whether it's your body or your background or your experience or a season of life, but those limitations are troubling to us. And therefore, one of the things that we do when we feel like we are out of control, rather than each of us being individuals responsible for ourselves, when we are out of control, we try to do the best for ourselves by taking control of things outside of us and we overstep boundaries. We try to control people, we try to control things that cannot be controlled, and therefore, it is inevitable most of us will be relating to God in some sort of way where we're nervous about God doing what he pleases. What if what he wants to do is not what I want? And therefore, God becomes scary, and we wind up getting into this religious game where we think if I could just learn the rules or be moral enough, then God will do what I want, failing to appreciate that this God is wise, and actually, if this God is good, his doing what he pleases is in our best interest. But we can be like the nations in verse 2 that says, why, uh, why should the nation say, verse 2 says, where is their God? And so Psalm 115, God will bless us. But it seems, if you read between the lines, that the, this is a period where maybe God's blessings are not clear. And there are plenty of Psalms where they cry out, Lord, help us. We're confused. We're angry. Deliver us. But this is a psalm of praise in the midst of this. It doesn't look like God is blessing us, and yet the nations will look and they will be mistaken to think that our struggles right now is because there is no God. That would be a misunderstanding because they can't control God just as we can't. And so God is doing what he pleases. We are gonna to hold to the goodness of God, that, that conviction. Um, but here it is. Now we have to wonder why isn't God blessing us? And it's that, that um, is one of the key reasons why faith is what's commended to us, that at the end of the day, you need to trust God's power, God's wisdom, 
And that doesn't mean what you want doesn't matter. That doesn't mean in relationship you don't communicate what you want. But we don't do the manipulative things we do with people, which is make demands. Lord, unless you do this, I'm not going to do that. That's how many of us wind up relating to God, or we just cut God off. And both of those uh, roots would be foolish. And so it would be kind of like, uh, by analogy with human relationships, um, are you able to allow people to be themselves? And every, every person has flaws. To a certain degree, we have to accept people with their imperfections. But sometimes people's imperfections can be damaging. And so you need to be discerning and you need to draw lines. And so you need to make those choices. But what we can't do is get in the business of trying to control other people. And so in our interactions, take, for example, you're on a date. And a date could be a time of discernment. You want to know, is this somebody that I should invest more in, spend more time with? And so having questions, wanting to get to know the person, the relational aspects are very important. And so having a question, tell me about this. Having a concern, you know, you shared this thing and I want to hear more about it. All of that's appropriate. But manipulating a person is not. And so sometimes on a date, um, you overstep the boundary of just trying to find out who this person is to where maybe you test the person. And you're trying not to find out who they are by your observation and by what they reveal, but you're trying to set them up in a way that you can see if you can get around uh, because you're suspicious. And when you test people, you set the relationship up for failure. It's not a good thing to do. So for example, if you're talking about going to a movie, and you're having a conversation, what movie should we see? And the person that you're trying to plan a date with said, you mention a movie and they say, I'm not really interested in that movie. It's fine to say, why not? I heard that it was really good. That would be appropriate to have a conversation about it. But if you think, actually, I'm gonna insist that we go in this movie and see what she does. At that point, that's a little bit different. So, so the person says, I'm not interested. You say, I actually really wanna see it. I think we should see it. And what you're thinking is maybe uh, I'm gonna uh, just try to get a feel for whether or not this person um, is willing to negotiate. I'm wanting to observe whether or not the person takes me seriously. And that's fine, but underneath a move like that, we're not always in tune with, we're trying to test whether or not we have any control over the other person. Actually, if I try this out and she complies, then actually I could try the next test and see how far in I can get. And that is disastrous. We don't, if, if that's how you're relating to people, you're setting up the relationship for failure. That's how some of us are relating to God. God, if you do this for me, I will do that for you. Does that mean be quiet, don't ask any questions, do what you're told? No, God is a relational God. If you have a question, ask the question. Come to know God. If something doesn't make sense, don't just believe it, but think through it. But testing God, a means of controlling God, a way of saying, I will only let you into my life, I will only believe in you unless you meet this criteria, fails to appreciate who God is and the nature of how relationships work. So we have a personal God, a God who is free. And so verses 9 to 11 call us to trust this God, not to test this God. So I want to move now into the second point, talking about lifeless gods. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of the Bible, is personal. But we have trouble relating to that God, and therefore it's easier to relate to things than personal beings. Some of you know that. You'd rather be with a book than with a person. A book is safer. It's easier to devote your time and energy to 
things rather than to the invisible God. But the warning is that there are things that start to become like a God in your life, but they're not living, they're not personal. And that actually is a recipe for your own ruin. And so the question of idolatry in Psalm 115 is what I wanna look at. Um, how do idols work? So, you, so we all have desires and we want things. And so you may want uh, a specific thing and if God isn't giving it to you, but you see other ways to get what you want, uh, you may pursue that. Now, to a certain extent, that's appropriate. If, if you need a job, don't just pray for God to give you a job and not apply for work. Apply for work, be proactive, do things, but also pray. Um, the way that idolatry comes up, so in, in, the, in uh, Israel, in the ancient time when this was written, there's those things you could control if you're a farmer as in an agricultural society. You could learn about the patterns of the seasons and, and learn uh, certain things if you plant them at certain times of year. You could learn how to take care of the soil. You could discipline your own life so that you are carefully doing that work. But you can't control whether or not it rains. And prior to modern irrigation, that was a big issue. You can do everything right and you may not eat because of the things that you can't control. So what do you do in that situation? Well, Israel should cry out to God, Lord, help us, but, but why is God not blessing us? And then 100 miles away, there's a nation where uh, they, they're showing up at the, the farmer's market in Babylon, and they've got all this produce, and we've got nothing. Uh, how does that work? Well, it's been raining there. Well, what do they do? Well, there is this God, this statue, and when they make offerings to it, it rains. That's what we've been doing. We've been making the offerings and it's been raining. We would recognize that as coincidental, but when you're desperate, you will try anything. So the people of Israel were tempted to say, if God is not giving us this, even though God warns us that that's foolish, why not try it? And then you come to the 21st century where most of us are not quite as religious, although there are religions today that people bow down before statues and idols. Um, but why does Jesus warn us so much about the love of money? Well, what is it you want in life? Do you want power? Do you want comfort? Do you want influence? Do you want respect? If God is not giving you those things, if you feel disadvantaged because you're a bit shy, because you didn't make the right choices, well, actually, having money will get you those things. And so um, money is not a God. Money is just a, a tool, something that we use. But when money is going to get you what you want, Jesus warns you, don't devote yourself to it because it will become like a God in your life, and it's a cruel master. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so what does it mean to be a religious person? It means to trust in what will give you what you want, to have a vision of what's good, to make life choices organized around certain things. We live in a city that largely says they're secular, but is devoted to the making of money in a way that looks very religious. Do you want to work 40 hours a week or 90 hours a week? I would like to work 40 hours a week, will you? Not in Manhattan. That's not how you're going to make uh, the kind of salary to afford yourself the penthouse apartment. And therefore, you will make sacrifices, your family, your energy, because earning that salary and having the status that goes with it is important. At that point, how is that different from religion? You're thinking about it. You're devoting your time to it. If you're discouraged, you remain faithful. I can't quit my job. I need to keep going. That's the nature of the relationship that we're to have with God, that we pursue him and we seek him and we trust him and we remain with him. And yet when he's failing, we will 
trust things like money or things like relationships. If I could just have a romantic relationship where I know that somebody loves me and is with me and I can have influence and I feel like I'm okay, relationships are good. If the relationship is the source of your meaning, a human being cannot live up to your expectations for them. The person that you may be involved with is not God, and therefore, if you deify them, you will destroy them in the relationship. If you deify money, if you deify uh, anything that will give you pleasure, comfort, these sorts of things, uh, you have a religious problem. And that's where we began with that quote, that all of us are relating in this world to God in some way. <clears throat> if we're not relating to God as God is, we are going to relate to other things as though we should with God. So verse four says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. And what should be obvious, which is that it's something we made and therefore we put ears on it, but the ears don't hear. We have fingers on it, but the fingers don't touch anything. And yet in our desperation, we will sit down hoping that this is connected to some power that will give us something. And we do a similar thing with Money. I'm using that as one example, but think of sex, money, power, the, the various things, status, the institutions that you want to connect yourself with. We're all a little bit different, but there are chief candidates of things that we say, if I could get established there, if I could have more of that, I will be somebody. I will have happiness. I will have fulfillment. And we're warned not to make gods of things. So we know not to make a god of a statue. Don't make a god of the company you work for or the school you go to. Yes, there is joy in being part of a prestigious place, but if that's your identity, uh, if it's become what you're serving and hoping in, you're setting yourself up for failure because uh, an institution cannot justify your existence. Um, as I was thinking about uh, idolatry and these things this week, there was uh, an article, or not an article, but in the New York Times this weekend, a video that was posted, uh, a documentary that a woman made where she's documenting uh, her effort to get off of opiates. Now she was using opiates because that was helping her stay away from heroin. But after about six years, she realized this is destroying her and she, so she's trying to get off. And the opening of this documentary, it's short, uh, but the opening scene, there are these different uh, images that come up, and here's what she, the narrator, says, uh, speaking about these drugs that she's going to try to quit. She says, I loved you. I would have done anything for you, but you never loved me back. In fact, you almost killed me, but I'm one of the lucky ones, I suppose, because I'm still here. Now, with something like addiction, it's obvious that we're enslaved. Most people with addictions at some point realize this is not good, I want to stop it, and they can't. And so drugs is a, is a clear example of somebody who is devoted religiously to something, and he or she is saying, uh, this is going to kill me, and yet it's hard for me to leave you. But one of the things she says there, she says, I loved you. Now, this is a very corrupted kind of love. I'm sure she knows that. It's not true. It's not genuine love, but it's that I'm looking to you. I'm devoted to you. You are first in my life. I'm doing everything to keep you in my life. And then she realized, but you don't love me. You're a thing. It's more obvious when it comes to drugs and drinking or gambling. It's not as obvious when it comes to certain other things. And that's where uh, it's wise for us to look at how we're relating to the things of the world. It's important to have a good job. If you are passionate about your work, that is wonderful. Devote a lot of time, energy, resources. Be satisfied when things don't, 
They'll be satisfied when things go well. Um, but don't serve your job as though it owns you, as though it will reward you, as though it's personal. Um, and so, uh, verses four to eight, the idols have mouths that don't speak. Why is this important? Verse eight tells us why. It says, those who make them become like them. That's the concern. We become like the things we devote ourselves to. So be careful not to make something and devote yourself to it. And this is where in our foolishness, we want control. If I've made it, I have control over it. But you have control over something that cannot help you when you're facing something bigger than your life. You're better off not having control of God, but God who is good at doing what he pleases. Instead, um, we often find ourselves uh, trusting in the things that we've made because we understand it, we have control over it, and it feels safe. But the warning here is it's not safe. Uh, right now you think you're just taking drugs because it's fun, but look at anyone who thought that years later there's no getting out of it. Jesus says you think that devoting yourself uh, to putting years into earning a, a lot of money is something that you can get out of at some point, but don't be foolish, don't devote yourself to it. I do think a special case for us in this time period, I'm talking about the big historic people have always, Jesus 2,000 years ago warned us about money or about status. The Roman Empire may be different than Columbia University, but there's always a warning to be careful not to be drawn by the big and the powerful that they become your gods and your leaders. We're in somewhat new territory, but it's not entirely territory in that devoting ourselves to the work of our hands, the technological abilities that we have, for many of us, what becomes appealing, and, and technology is good, technology solves the world's problems. But we want it to be solving problems like cancer or being disconnected. We don't want it to be solving the problem of relating to people who are independent and free. Uh, people around you who you don't have control over, and therefore you want to be relating to something who you do have control over, and therefore the better we get at making machinery that answers our questions, that obeys our commands, but that we have the power to shut off when we don't want to be there, who won't ask us a question that we don't want them to ask us. When that becomes more comfortable, and most of us will know, my phone will never love me, my phone will never be loyal. But when you're struggling in life and your friends are not being loyal, and it feels like those around you are not loving you, uh, sometimes it's just better to be able to speak and to have a voice respond and to feel like this is connecting with who I am, what I want, and I can tailor this device to me. Now, um, I'm not anti-technology. I am warning us not to devote ourselves to the things that our hands have made, to create something that feels like a human being that is not a human being, and to start to feel like relating to Alexa and Siri is better than relating to my roommate. Um, because in our laziness, we will quickly do that and become more fractured as a society. Relating to ChatGPT could be easier than relating to God. Um, but the algorithm is not faithful to you. It will not love you. You need more than information. You need more than somebody who just matches your desires. And so the warning about these lifeless gods devoting ourselves to things is that we become like them. So the warning is, don't devote yourself to a thing because the thing can't see, speak, or reason, or love, and therefore you are vulnerable to becoming the same way. The third thing I want to talk about is the living God, because if you devote yourself to God, you will 
grow in life. If you become like the thing that you've made, what happens when you become like the one who made you? That's why this is valuable. That's why this is important, because there's something offered to us to say, actually, maybe we can't control God, but if God is good, if God has the power to give life, there's something there that we should give our attention to. And so when you read the Bible, there's a number of ways to understand what's happening. And so one of the things we see is God as the lawgiver. God is the ruler, the king over the universe. And then you read Genesis 3, the story of Adam and Eve, and you think the fundamental issue is the breaking of a law. And therefore, how do we reckon with that? And that's true. That is a way you could read the Bible. Another way to read that story, though, is to see that at the heart of what went wrong with humanity was betrayal. Not simply a bad choice, not simply breaking a rule, but a failure to trust the one who gave all things, the one who gave instruction and warning. Um, when humanity turned from God, it was a betrayal, which means that now there's estrangement, there's a problem between humanity and God. It's not simply that we need to learn the rules so if we can get everything right, we will be in the realm of how things work. But actually God, who is personal, who we can't control, uh, we can't do anything to make God like us. The hope has to be broader than that. And so in Psalm 115, the Psalm of hope and worship and joy, uh, one of the things that I think stands out that's important on the nature of God, if you believe that God is free, but that God is good. Verse 12, it says, the Lord has remembered us. And so he seems to be writing at a period where it doesn't look like the Lord is aware of us. What's happening, we're struggling. But there's a confidence that the Lord who has blessed us in the past will bless us. Why? Because the Lord remembers us. And so then you have Jesus, who, like in the parable of the prodigal son, pictures God as a father who's been betrayed by his youngest son, but waits with longing for his return. Jesus is communicating that in that betrayal, the nature of God is that he's not malicious and spiteful. That God who did not want us to leave wants us to return. And it tells us something, not just that God is personal, but why God being personal is good for us. And one of the warnings of scripture is that those who make idols become like them. Uh, there's an interesting fact in the opening of the Bible that God made us in his image, which means God made us to become like him. That was God's purpose from the very beginning. That's actually where we were deceived to think that actually God was withholding making us like him. Uh, we are image bearers. We are to become like God. That's where the fullness of our humanity comes out. When we have true power and authority, true love, true uh, truth and justice and all these attributes of God, the more we become like God, the more we become what a human being is meant to be. We become like the things we make instead of becoming like the one who made us. Here's what's remarkable about Christianity is that the one who made us becomes like us. And so this warning here, be careful that you don't become like the things you have made. The vulnerability of God, what we are told that Jesus Christ, the incarnation, sending his son into the world, that the God who we betrayed became like us. And in that likeness, not only fulfilled what it means to be a human being in his wisdom, compassion, and truth, but he joined us by suffering the consequences of betrayal. Jesus was crucified as though he were a sinner because the one who made us became like us in order to offer us pardon, in order that reconciliation would be possible. And so in this psalm where there's a question of God who is in the heavens and does all that he pleases, 
And the nations ask, where is their God? And the answer is unsatisfying. We say, he's there, but I don't see it. Uh, Christianity advances the story that the Bible, the New Testament says, Jesus, the son of God came. So now when the nations say, where is their God? He's not just a God in the heavens, but that God does what he pleases. And for some reason it pleased him to come in the midst of our brokenness and suffering and to suffer on our behalf. And so where is their God? Christians point to the cross and say, that's the one that we serve. The one who is faithful, the one whose steadfast love endures forever, that though we didn't deserve it, though we did not return to him despite his invitation, he came and pursued us. And that's what makes relating to God possible. Not that we learn the rules, not that we get our lives together and become perfect, but that we understand the gracious nature of God who gives us life because he is generous and kind. And in your effort to control and make your life better, you're squeezing the life out of your own existence. We're told instead to trust the one you can't control. And he will help you in the areas of life you can't control because he is faithful. That's a very different thing. And so in verses 9 to 11, the urging of the son is trust in the Lord. You can't control God. That's good. It means God is more powerful than you. God is more wise than you. And why is God not doing what you want at the moment? Ask, but trust him while you're asking. And so this idea of remembering, God remembered us. That's the thing, we forget God. We forget who God is, what he's like, how to find him. God remembered us, and that becomes a source of encouragement for us when we find that the things we've hoped in has failed us, when the career that we thought would work out fails, when the person that we hoped would marry us breaks up with us, when the health that we assumed would be with us uh, for a period fails. Uh, in those moments, knowing that there is a God that we can't control, but is faithful, who's steadfast in love, and he remembers us. He remembered us that when we went astray, he sent Jesus into the world to call us back. And we're told that this living God still remembers us, and that will radically change us. I read a, a story about Babe Ruth, one of the most famous baseball players of uh, American baseball history, that in the 1926 World Series, somehow the, Yan the Yankees were contacted um, about a kid in New Jersey named Johnny Sylvester, I think that's his name, who had fallen off a horse and was injured very badly. And over the course of the summer, his health was progressing in, with numerous complications where the doctor said he's not gonna live. And, and it's assumed that somebody thought we really need to encourage this kid, give him some energy, give him some strength. And so somebody wrote to the Yankees and said, uh, you know, could you do something? And so they passed around a ball or two in the locker room and, uh, and wrote on it and sent the balls. But Babe Ruth wrote, as the story goes, on one of the baseballs, I'm going to knock our homer on Wednesday. Uh, so this was the fourth game of the World Series. The first three games, he did not get a home run. And in that fourth game, he hit three home runs. And the way the story is told, and there's all sorts of questions about what actually happened, what's true, but that this boy made this miraculous recovery. Um, and the assumption is he was so overwhelmed that this, uh, this hero, this famous baseball player, not only knew of my situation, but went into that game, remembered me, and did something for me. And then after that, Ruth went and visited him in the hospital. Uh, and he did make a great recovery and apparently had a very successful life. Uh, now, what details of those story are true, I don't know, but we could imagine that young boy uh, not wanting to get out of bed, 
in his life being hopeless, all of a sudden feeling if this great figure remembered me, came to be with me, um, I now view myself differently. What the Bible says is that, that if we recognize that God remembers us, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who is the greatest being ever, we don't get him, we don't understand him, but he gets us. He remembers us. We don't know him, but he knows our very frame. And therefore, he has done something for us. He has done something sacrificial. The nature of what he did is to take on our misery so that he could free us from it. When you grasp that, when you grasp that that's actual what true love looks like, it's not manipulation, when you grasp that that's what faithfulness looks like, that God would have been just to destroy us, but actually he still came after us. When that starts to be the thing that says, I don't need to prove that I'm somebody, but I need to recognize that in God's eyes I'm somebody, it actually frees you, and that's what we'll talk about next week, from that selfish impulse. Getting our relationship right with God is essential, and it's not just higher power, it's not just a divine being, it's not just an energy force, but the, the God who speaks, the God who creates things, the God who sent his son into the world to give you life. That is where actually real transformation will happen. So by the end of this psalm, there's a contrast with those who don't know God and those who devote themselves to the things that they've made and how they become like them, and those of us who trust God and wait on his blessing, verses 17 to 18, the dead, do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. And that's the path of any who devotes themselves to a created thing. That thing will not give you life. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And that's the nature of a healthy relationship. We can't make God bless us, but we believe he will. But we should bless God. And so if it seems right now that we're confused, that it doesn't seem that God's doing what we want, we will still bless him because that's what the living do. We're alive because of God, and if I'm alive, I'm gonna use my life to bless the Lord, and I'm gonna trust that that faithful, loving God will bless me, and I will see it, because I'm gonna be wise enough to know that even in the short term, if this thing will give me what I desire, it will not give me life. And so the Psalm is a call to trust in the Lord. And this is so important, um, because we all go through periods where we feel disconnected from the world, from life, uh, it has to do with our bodies, it has to do with our world, it has to do with the ups and downs of things. The anchor that we need is to know that God is without change. God loves us, God is faithful, and therefore in that period where you don't know what God is doing, to know that God has not forgotten you, God remembers you, the foundation of that is he sent Jesus. We looked at the cross, he, he suffered for us, and therefore he would not now be pernicious, he would not overlook our current sufferings. And it's that that breathes life into us. So when we are those who will bless the Lord because we believe it to be true, you find that that conviction, that belief changes the rest of it. It changes your psychology. It changes how you relate to others. It changes how you do work, how you enjoy the things of this world. Trust that the Lord remembers you. Seek to bless him because that's what the living do. And we serve a living personal God. Be a living personal person. Walk with God. Let me pray for us. Our Father, um, even as we heed this warning, uh, many of us here will recognize that we so more easily find satisfaction or hope or meaning in things that are temporal. And uh, Lord, we get stuck, we get ensnared, and we know that uh, none of these things will give us life from the dead, none of these things will love us and grant forgiveness. And yet, uh, though the gospel is clear for many of us, uh, receiving it is difficult. 
And so we pray that your spirit would remove the clouds between us and you, and that your grace would shine clearly in, and that, and that your kindness and your mercy and your perfections would be um, making their way into our lives such that they breathe life into our discouraged, dying souls. Lord, uh, you who made us and you who have not forgotten us, we appeal to you that the power of your spirit would be in our midst uh, to breathe new life so that we could walk faithfully with you this week. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.